Welcome to Da Conversatorios. This conversatorio is from the 2014 Rutas Festival and was part of a conference event called Restaging Treaty, Embodied Memories, Written Records, and Living Archives. The event started with a reading of a new play commission by Phelan Johnson on the subject of Treaty 9 and was followed by a panel discussion. Treaty 9 is an agreement signed between certain Cree and Ojibwe communities and the Crown. Treaty 9 covers most of present-day Northern Ontario and about two-thirds of the province. In Phelan's new play, Erica, the lead protagonist, takes the audience on a journey back in time to 1905. Here, she introduces us to her family and their negotiations with two treaty commissioners, Duncan Campbell Scott and George McMartin. In this world, the absurdity of the treaty-making process is revealed. The following panel was organized and moderated by Sasha Kovach, an artist and performance scholar. Because in the case of this treaty, it seems to me that the archive is so palpably alive. That is, the art, there are these archives that are talking to each other and speaking with each other and contesting each other. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that as a kind of performance, I think, today as well. And so by that, I mean that while once uh, the words on the text, the primary document called Treaty Number 9, while once this was a binding agreement, more recently scholars, lawyers, and artists, whom we are now in the company of, so thank you, have found voices and perspectives in other archives that we call that agreement as written into question. So it's this performance between and across archives that makes us ask a number of questions about what escapes this treaty as a written document's purview. Our panelists are Phelan Johnson. Phelan is Mohawk and Tuscarora from Six Nations Grand River Territory. She's a writer, dramaturg, actor, and co-host of CBC podcasts The Secret Life of Canada with Leah Simone Bowen, and is a guest host of CBC Radio's Unreserved. John Long. John is the author of Treaty Number no. 9, Making the Agreement to Share the Land in Far Northern Ontario in 1905. At the time of this discussion, he was a professor at the Schulich School of Education in North Bay. Murray Klippenstein. Murray has over 25 years of a broad social justice practice in the fields of native rights, environmental law, housing and employment law, and civil rights. Murray has represented the Meshkigwak First Nation in James Bay for over 15 years. The panel started with opening remarks from Reverend Grafton Anthony, Wolf Clan from the Oneida of the Thames First Nation. He's a former elder in resident at the University of Toronto's First Nation House, an Oneida language teacher, and is a retired reverend at the United Church of Toronto's Urban Native Ministry. Let's start the conversation. Regarding the land, our, our women control land. When, when the settlers came over here from across the salty ocean, they, uh, they didn't have women. They were army, army of men, sailors or whatever. And they came and they came over and uh, they uh, couldn't, wouldn't talk to our women because our women owned the land and stuff like that. And our, our, uh, our men would always ask the women, so what do you think of this? You think that's a good deal or not? And the women <laughs> would turn around and they'd say, you know, she'd go back to her women's council and she'd tell them and, she, and the women's council would, decide what's good and what isn't. And then they'd come back and tell the men's council, this is what we think. And, uh, and the men would uh, turn around and say, well, hmm, oh, that's, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> Anyways, um, the, uh, the men from across the sea pushed aside our women and they wanted to talk to the men because man to man, you know, talk. And so we always kind of deferred to our, our women to give us advice. And then we would tell them. And uh, I think that's what's important here. 
That's what's important here in our performance. We need to talk to our our our, our women, and they they will because they're the keepers of the earth, and uh, we men we provide things for them so that the women will be happy and the children will be fine. Thank you. Well, um, I think that's a good way to say that we should begin with women. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe we can begin with you, uh, Phelan. But I think to begin, um, it might be uh, interesting to hear what drove you to begin doing the work that you were doing for the performance that we just saw and um, how it provides a vision of an alternative. And I think we saw kind of the alternative vision that it, that it offers. So. Um, well, I was approached by Aluna, uh, specifically by Trevor, to uh, create a verbatim piece on Treaty 9. And I just said yes, because I've never been commissioned to do anything before, so I thought that was great. <laughs> and, yeah. and, then I, and then I was like, okay, so what's this about? And then Trevor gave me a giant book. Thank you. <laughs> and um, I started to go, I started to look through the book, um, and then I started to think about, because I'm not a Treaty 9 person, I'm from Six Nations, so I'm Haudenosaunee, uh, Mohawk and Tuscarora, and, um, and then I started to think about my treaty and how my treaty affects me and how I know nothing of how my treaty affects me. So then I thought, okay, well now I have to find people who are Treaty 9, um, people so I can talk to them and ask them questions about, about the treaty. So I sat down with Erica Eiserhoff, which is why the character in the play was named Erica, because I wanted to honor Erica's contributions to the piece. Um, and we started speaking, and I sat down with her, and we were having coffee, and I said, so how does Treaty 9 affect you? And she was like, I have no idea. <laughs> and I said, well, does someone owe you some money or something? <laughs> and she was like, I have no idea. And so we talked a little bit about that, but it, it was really like enlightening to me that she knew nothing. So then I sat down with Rosary, who is in the piece, who played Erica. Rosary is from Fort Albany, and in the piece there's reference to her great uncle, Munoz. Or sorry, not Munoz, sorry. What was his name? Marius is how he's listed in the treaty. Um, and so he, he was, it's actually, that's her uncle's name, it's actually her, her uncle, and she's also fluent in Cree, so it was really handy to have her in the piece. And so I sat down with her and I said, so, what do you know about Treaty 9? And she was like, not much. And I said, well, does someone owe you some money or something? And she said, yeah. <laughs> and then she's like, I haven't collected since I was 16. So then we did the math and we started talking about that a little bit. But that was pretty much the extent to what she knew about her treaty. Um, and so that's a really tragic thought um, for me, that we are, we are all treaty people. I, I do believe that because there are, all of our ancestors signed this agreement together, so it's our responsibility. It's not a one-sided agreement mm -hmm. to learn about the treaties and to be able to speak about them. So now I know a lot about Treaty 9, but I don't know a lot about my treaty. So my next step is to start to do that kind of research because I realize how it, this does affect us and I need to be able to speak about it in a better way and no more. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, neat. And I think it's it's interesting in the performance how it, how it begins, of course, with this calculation, right? Um, especially in light of uh, some of what we were hearing from Jill Carter yesterday, that kind of the violence of this, like, you know, insurance policy <laughs> kind of format where this equals this and this amount of trauma equals this kind yeah. of uh, uh, compensation, that there's also... It starts with this idea of calculation, but it, it of course ends with her saying that that's that's not what it's about at all. Right? It's about so much more, so much more than that. So yeah, thanks for your insights on the performance. Maybe yeah. we can hear from from you, John, about your relationship to what brings you to this issue. And okay, well, <clears throat> thank you for the invitation to be uh, on this distinguished panel. And uh, that that was an amazing, amazing. Uh, dramatical presentation, it was just absolutely Thanks. beautiful. And uh, our, our, it really made the treaty come alive and embodied the treaty uh, and brought out gender and it brought out so many things that 
you don't see in McMartin's journal. So thank you very much. Um, and I know that uh, Trevor acknowledged the uh, Mississaugas of New Credit earlier, but when we think about this area and think about those who benefited from treaty um, and those who were generous, it's probably you probably couldn't find a better part of Canada to show how generous First Nations were and how, how much non-Aboriginal people have benefited from treaties. So um, I uh, have been probably thinking about treaty for over 40 years. And when I first started thinking about treaty, I, I started by uh, reading the treaty the wrong way. Usually when most of us read books, we start on page one, page two, page three. And when the government starts reading the treaty, it's these first two, three pages, two and a half pages or so. That's where the government's authority comes from to do all that they do. And um, but I've come to realize that it is a mistake to start reading the treaty at page one. You have to, I believe that you must go to page three or four where the signatures start. And as, um, as we saw in the, in the production that went earlier, the, the embodiment of the treaty, before people signed, the words were written, signed, after having been first interpreted and explained. And then people made, somebody held the pen and people touched the pen and we see all these crosses, not X's, but crosses. And up there we should see Andrew Wesley in the middle. Um, just below the center line, um, Andrew Wesley and his mark. And Andrew Wesley, of course, is the grandfather of Meshkegwa Grand Chief uh, uh, Stan Ludit. So um, it's embodied in the ancestors of, of the signatories as well, this treaty. If we start on page three or four, depending on what community we, we, we are interested in, it reminds us that it was an oral agreement, that it was interpreted and explained from a foreign language. Um, so I start on page three or four, and I never go back to page one and two. But when we look at McMartin's journal, it tells us this message that we have been sent by the king. Um, the king wants you to be happy and prosperous, or happy and comfortable is probably um, a closer way to how it would have been translated. Enough to, sufficient, enough to get by. Um, you know, not, not uh, prosperous in the sense of being wealthy, but always having enough. So the king wants you to be happy and prosperous. As a sign of his goodwill, you'll have a gift of $8 for every, every person. And that was a novelty. People had not seen cash before. It was a barter economy. And it was a lot of money in 1905. And... Uh, you will get the money after you sign your name. Signing your name would only happen sometimes, I guess, um, certainly in the uh, what we'd call the Anglican church records when people got married. When you, when you went to get things at the store, someone would write in a book. So signing your name after receiving gifts would, would have made sense in the barter economy of the day and the limited, limited experience with uh, missionaries at the time. And then a feast. And the bannock out here is great because it was bannock and tea. Mm -hmm. that, that, that was the feast. It's not the quality of the food. It's the act of sharing. And, and uh, I suspect that the commissioners did not share the food. Um, we have a picture at Fort Albany where the commissioners are standing up on a raised platform and everybody else seems to be eating. Um, but still, it was a nice idea. Gift giving is always nice. Um, and a flag, these big flags that 
people would be wrapped in uh, at, at treaty time to show their authority, I guess, or um, that they had the authority of the king. And it's always, you know, all these images, is this to protect you or is this to strangle you with, right, with the, with the king? So, um, and then an area of land will be set aside, but we won't talk about that until after you've signed your name. It might be tomorrow or it might be the next day. So what it meant in terms of this land, that wasn't even talked about when, when, uh, when the treaty was signed. So it's a no-strings-attached gifts. Do you accept? Well, sure. Why, why not accept this? This is nice. This, you're, you're being very kind, and it would be rude and hostile of us to, to say no. So um, I, I started to understand this when um, Rosary's great-uncle, um, Marius, um, I heard him and some other elders talking, and he said when, when they came with the pen, we just touched the top of it. And, uh, and then so when someone told me about McMartin's journal, it all made perfect sense that this, this is what people uh, were talking about. And, and um, people were living on the land at that time. They, they were living by hunting and fishing, uh, trapping, just another kind of hunting. And they had uh, thousands of years of experience with sharing sharing with each other, sharing with uh, the animals. According to, uh, in mythic times, uh, much like uh, Sky Woman falling, the, uh, the first people were lowered from, from above by, by a giant spider and landed in a, a nest in a tree and were rescued by the animals and the animals showed them how to live. And uh, so that sharing started in ancient times People shared long before this, the strangers arrived from, from uh, overseas. And then for a couple of hundred years before the treaty was signed, they shared with these strangers. Um, they didn't share much of the land. There was a very modest sharing of the land where these little trading posts were. But they shared the resources of the land, the food, the animals, the furs, uh, and so on. So people knew what sharing was about. But sharing took place always with the understanding that this, we have to make our living from the land and we can share as long as we can make our living from the land. Um, this is one of the first um, uh, places where the treaty was signed. This is uh, of the Carpenter family. And um, people lived on the land and they had temporary houses. They moved around on the land. They, they needed all the land. Um, so um, that, in that sense, one of the things I noticed that the diaries don't say is, McMartin does not say, and then Mr. Scott asked, will you share the land with us? It's not there. He doesn't say, and then the people said, yes, we are willing to share the land with you. And yet, in the oral tradition, the treaties remembered as, that's when we agreed to share the land. That's how people would have understood it. It was, the, the fur trade was going to continue, that same kind of, it's our land, and we, we're, we're glad to share with you, but this is how we live, this is how we survive. We raise our children this way, um, we pass on our language this way. And, um, And, and so that's the way they would have understood it. Even though those words weren't spoken, that was people's experience to share the land. And then at Fort Albany, um, one of the negotiators, the negotiations took place in a, inside, in, in a room. So there were people outside, like an audience, but they didn't hear what was going on. And no one was allowed out after one mistake at the beginning until the document was signed and then uh, people went outside. Um, but after the treaty signing, one of the uh, negotiators from, from uh, the Fort Albany signing wrote a little address in Cree syllabics, and it 
thanked the commissioners for coming to visit the people, Uta Nitaskinak, Uta, here, Nitaskinak, our land. There's two ways to say our land. There are two different prefixes. One is ours, meaning everybody in the, in the room, including the commissioners, and that, that's the inclusive one. And the other one is ours, but not yours. And that's the one he uses. Thanks for visiting us in our land, ours but not yours. So the, the whole experience people had for hundreds of years, and even from the language uh, um, that people used, they understood it was their land, not because they owned it, but because they depended on it. They, it had been given to them, and they depended on it. They looked after it. So. Um, that's why I don't go back to page one and two where it says we cede, release, surrender, and yield up forever all our rights to this land. So, um, and that's why uh, uh, the grandson of uh, uh, one of the treaty signatories says that that's the real treaty. It's that oral agreement, uh, uh, Grand Chief Stan Ludet. And so for me as a, a non-Aboriginal uh, person, whose grandparents weren't living uh, on this uh, North American continent in 1905, uh, that doesn't matter. We're all treaty people, and, and we have to understand the treaty relationship. And we, I think, all have to, we have to advocate so everyone benefits from that relationship, so that it's not just one party that's benefiting, and one is, um, is not. So that's, that's how I come about it. Sorry, that's a little, Probably a little bit too much. But thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And uh, Marie, would you like to contribute anything to this? Of course. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. And um, um, one of the things that uh, jumped out at me and really start, you know, st stuck with me and struck me uh, from the performance were the words at the near the end that said, um, the words were not only spoken, which was a wonderful way to say something. The words were spoken, and um, you know the words that were spoken all over those locations on that map were for the treaty. The treaty is an agreement. We can interpret it or define it, but the treaty is an agreement, and in this case, it's an agreement between you can say the king and the First Nations. But what it means for us today is between the First Nations people, like the Meshkigawak or Haudenosaunee. Who, and as John said, it's, it's, it's their land. And the agreement back then was made, yes, it, it is your land. And now that treaty covers two-thirds of Ontario. The promises that we're talking about here, the words that were, that were spoken and not only spoken, they cover two-thirds of Ontario. And what's there? There's all the, you know, the different resources, and for example, you, you may have seen mention of a new potential development, mineral development in northern Ontario called the Ring of Fire, um, which is a gigantic set of mineral deposits, which the government says is another Sudbury. This is the biggest mineral find in 100 years. It's right in Treaty 9. It's where these words were spoken and these promises were made. And the words, you know, as was made clear, um, that there were words that were spoken, and, and then another thing that was said was, you left that part out. Those are the two things. And you find in the, in the written treaty document, I don't like to call it the written treaty. It's the document that, that, as you saw, got the signatures that came there. That's a document. And we've fallen for 100 years into saying that's the treaty. But it's not. It's a document, and when you read this other document that has come out of the archives and had, was gone for 100 years, you have these other words. And the treaty document says, and this was really brought out really well, you can continue to hunt and trap and fish throughout your land as you always have, and then there's the other half, except on lands taken up for mining, settlement, forestry. Those are the two parts. 
And the first part was said in the written treaty document and was said, um, the words were spoken in the meetings. But the second part is in a document, but it was never said. In other words, but if we, the king, want your land for mining or forestry, we can take it. That was never said. So when, you know, uh, when, when the agreement was made, it was an oral agreement and it was, you can continue to hunt and trap and fish throughout the land as you always have. That's it. So when they're talking about a, a few gigantic mines up near Martin Falls, well, with those mines, and I've seen the description of the tailings and everything, well, you can't hunt and trap and fish there anymore when there's a mine or when it's clear cut. So there's a clash between the promise that you can, these are your lands, you can hunt and trap and fish wherever you have, as you always have, as you please. And the words that were in the written document that were not interpreted, that were left out, and it says we can, we can take as much as we want. So that's the two things and what we're dealing with now. And, you know, when I first saw the diaries and ordered copies, by the way, I've been, as mentioned, I've been working with the, as legal counsel for the Meshkigwak Cree uh, in around James Bay for something like 20 years. And, you know, going to assemblies and on them, had the pleasure of working with John many, many years ago and people, you know, there'd be talk of a mine or forestry, and the, you know, the elders or the leaders would come to me as legal counsel, can we go to court and stop? I said, actually, I'm sorry, but there's just not evidence. I know there's a tradition of the oral history, but I don't think, given the rules of evidence, it's gonna stand up in court. And the way, you know, litigation lawyers will cross-examine the elders in an incredibly disrespectful way in court. It's not gonna, don't go to court. But when I saw these diaries a few years ago, and I read them, they're long and they're hard to read. It's handwriting, you know, cramped. And it took a long time. And I read lots of stuff about mosquitoes and lunches and stuff. <laughs> and, then, and then I came to some parts. I remember the first time I came to the part and I almost fell out of my chair. I thought I'd read everything that had been written about Treaty 9 and all the documents, and I mean, like John. And I, I think it was about Moose Factory that I came to first or whatever. And they said, <clears throat> uh, you know, we had a discussion and, and um, we said that you can continue. They asked questions about hunting and they said, you can continue to hunt and trap as in days of yore, as you please, or whatever. There's variations. And then I said, okay, yeah, that's in the written treaty. I know that. And then I said, uh, okay, where's the other shoe dropping about we can take the, where's the taken up clause? Where's the, no, it's not there. So we've got the promise, this is your land, you can use it the way you always have. Okay, that's it. And then Fred Mark, one of the leaders says, um, we accept the agreement as you have stated it. And it took me a while to sing it, as you have stated it. Like not as you've written it, not as we've signed. We accept the agreement as you've stated it. I said, I thought about it. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you've got this promise. It's, it's your land, and we accept that statement. I said, oh. And then I read more, and it happened again and again and again. And that's the way, several times, you know, and I, for a while I was, for, I was forgetting who it was, whose handwriting I was reading. Okay, it's one of the government negotiators. He has authority from the government. He knows what's in that document, and he knows what's at stake. He knows this is big. You know, he has every motive, in one sense, to do his job and get that document signed so that we can have their land, okay? But that's not what he did. Time and time again, he said, in different words, same thing, location, at, oh, that's why those dots were on the map. You know, you can continue to hunt and trap as you always have, where you please, period. And then someone else will say, we agree with what's been said. Again, 
you know, which is, of course, is what they would have said. We, we cannot understand this English document written in legalese, you know, which you're asking. But do we do things the way we always do, orally, with agreement, and we keep our word? Again and again, you can continue to use your land the way you please, wherever you want. And then we accept what you have said. We, we accept the terms as stated. And it made me, you know, of course, me and you, from a common sense point of view, Daniel George McMartin, who we saw here, why would he write those in his diary? And what? And I'd say, okay, like what? And these were written, you know, you don't, we don't know if he went to his tent every evening or in the canoe the next day, but, you know, lots of detail. He's an eyewitness. He wrote down what he saw and heard. It's embodied, you know, embodied words. And uh, we, we have eventually, when the, the full potential meaning of these diaries, you know, started to sink in and we spoke with the Grand Chief Fluted and the elders on several, many conferences and meetings in Northern Ontario, um, we did eventually uh, launch a lawsuit. Um, and uh, it's in the very initial stages. It will take a long, long time. The stakes are incredibly high. And I said to them, you know, there are lots of good things about our legal system. There are lots of not so good things. And the First Nations people have learned not to trust the legal system. But one of the good things is it does pay attention to facts and, and evidence. And so what we have here is, you know, an eyewitness, government official, who understood what was going on. And as far as we can tell, as far as I, he simply decided to tell the truth. He didn't talk about it. As far as we, John can correct me if I'm right. But those diaries, I think, were never hand filed with the government. The other, the other two wrote these perfunctory dory, uh, diaries, and they were, they were filed with the government. Daniel never did that. He kept them. I don't know, put them in his, when he passed away, he went into his estate. Went through, sat around for decades, ended up in a box, I think, in the Queen's University archives. Somebody told me they were, like, wrongly filed. So I don't know what he was thinking. You know, maybe he just said, maybe the first time he heard this, he said, I can't believe what's happening here. And maybe he just said, I'm just going to write it down. I'm just going to tell the truth to my diary, and, and, and we'll see whatever, you know, whatever happens, happens. And maybe that's what's happening right now. Maybe right now, you know, the, the truth is coming out. And, um, you know, what, what does it mean? And this, this was another great thing about the, the writing, um, uh, you know, is you can't put mines in our territory without our consent. You need our consent. Which is very interesting, and we've been talking about that up north, because... There's, a, there's this huge push for the last 15 years um, about consultation with First Nations people. The Supreme Court of Canada said you have to consult with Native people. That word, I've come to call that word, this is now the official buzzword at all levels, don't you know, mine our lands with, without consulting us. And even many of the chiefs have bought into that because it's a good word. Who can be opposed to consultation? It's beautiful. We talk. It's beautiful. But this is, but I, I've said to them, no, when you read the diaries and see the implications, it's not just that they consult with you before they build a mine. That's not what the diaries say. That's not what the words were that were the key said. This is yours. So you can't do this without our consent. That was one of the very important things that came out. So, you know, from a legal point of view, the Supreme Court of Canada has said oral promises that were made as part of a treaty are binding. They're legally binding. They're a treaty. They're an agreement. Furthermore, the Constitution in Section 35 says that treaties are constitutionally protected. So you can't just pass laws to change what is constitutionally protected. So, so you know, this, this is very, very important. And so 
you know, it, it, uh, you know we, we talk about, you know, how this affects us and when we're talking about this, it's, it's like promises were made, agreements were made between peoples, between nations, about vast parts of the land. You know, do we, it, it raises the question. Sorry, I get emotional. Uh, listening to the play, I had tears rolling down my eyes, and I'm grateful for that. I'm supposed to be a hard-ass litigator, but I, <laughs> I, I, keep, I keep weeping all the time. It's a problem. Um, it's been happening here the past couple of days. What do we do with our promises? When we make promises, you know, as a community, do, do we keep them? You know, what about pro what about agreements? When we make agreements, do we keep them? You know, and we should. And I think there there was something interesting in the performance in that moment where we saw this kind of sing and dance uh, as they're going to these different uh, posts, right, to do the signing, to to think of the the treaty making process as a as a kind of performance. Mm -hmm. And that document that we see, that, that primary document as a script. And I think anyone who knows anything about performance knows that the script is never the performance, mm -hmm. right? This, there, there is always this improvisation that occurs. There is, uh, you know, what Rick Knowles calls this new, this, this cultural, this uh, materialism, right? There's, there's the material context of production that make meaning of a performance. So it extends beyond uh, beyond that document. Sorry, but that raises some really interesting things. I, I'm sorry to go on a bit, but it's really important. You talk about the script and then the performance, and that's what happened here. The script was the treaty that you signed. That was the script, but the performance was something else because when the commissioners came there, they realized they, they didn't want to follow the script because the chiefs and the people there wouldn't buy it. They, it really dawned on them. If we tell them we're going to take your land, they say, we're not going to leave here with signatures. We might not even leave here at all. <laughs> so they knew it wouldn't fly. They altered, they departed from the script to create a performance that their audience would accept. And, this, and they had to do that because of the negotiating power of the First Nations people and the smarts. Like we heard some of them say, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You are giving us something for free? Like, what do you think we're, you don't, you know? So they had to change the, the script. They had to depart from, they said, no, no, you can continue to hunt all over wherever you, as always, it's okay. So, and they had to do that. And when I told the Meshkigwak uh, people of mine, I said, you know what, what's happened here is you should be proud. You, you out-negotiated the white man <laughs> because they wanted to do, and you out you said no. Or they, and they said, okay, all right. So people were very, when I told them the story, they said, yeah, right, we, you know, Grand Chief said my, you know, my grandfather or whatever, they wouldn't buy it. So that's why the white negotiators backed off because of the negotiating power and firmness of the, of the native people. And then, um, <clears throat> yeah, so that, that, and then and the other thing that occurred to me is that you talked about the voices coming up and the irony is you know, we're here because of the white man negotiator who was there to take the land, wrote something down that he didn't intend, and it disappeared for 100 years, and now it's with us again. So talk about a strange voice coming out, you know? And I, I, when, I talk, when I talked to people, I said, they would say, I said, now we can do a legitimate, viable lawsuit. And they said, well, you'll have the evidence of the elders, right? I said, actually, no. I'm not even sure I'll call a single elder as evidence because this is going to be about the document because that's the most, the strongest evidence in a court because litigation lawyers from the government, they will not respect elders. They'll cross-examine them in a very disrespectful way. And this is about the document. So the irony is that the voice that we're putting into court is the voice of the white man negotiator who wrote in his diaries and it disappeared for him. So the voice that's coming up now, you know, from the past is that. The panel opened the floor to the attendees of the conference. The first question from the audience was, are we imposing a contemporary personal understanding to a moment that would have been a task that's part of the job of the commissioner? Why would the commissioner keep a journal? Here's John with his response. Well, Scott had a camera, which 
and, and his images, of course, are, are, are really important. Uh, and partly that's why I think he didn't write very much. But he also had his poet's journal with him. And, and in 1906, he didn't even want to keep a, 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 a real short form of journal. He, wanted, he brought his own writer along to keep a record. Um, so I think they kept journals because they didn't have iPhones. You know? that's, that's, that's what you did if you were a certain social class. You kept a diary of, of your travels. You didn't, have, you didn't take slides to, sh to bore people with in your living room afterwards or, 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 or videos. So people, people kept diaries, people of a certain social class. Once again, historically, Western, uh, but the written word uh, um, is, is taken uh, to have more value than the oral history that's held in the cell memory of people who were part of these negotiations and, and, and in our legal system, you know. Uh, but in, in you know, uh, Western dominated, uh, you know, the, the, Dominant culture as well. Um, to me, that's that's an interesting thing because to me, uh, oral uh, cell memory is is just as uh, valid, if not more so, because you can lie in the written, obviously, <laughs> word. Whereas um, to me, uh, 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 you know, oral uh, history is. Uh, held in the cell memory of everyone who was part of it. So to think that there's a whole group of people who heard these words, it's very hard then for one person to turn around and start telling lies, because everyone else who heard it could, can, in the community, uphold the truth. Is that not so? That's my question. And so I, I find it ironic, do you not find it ironic that after all this time, What's going to hold up in a court of law is the written word of a white man who was there. Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, 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 you know, I am all about blood memory and cellular memory, and I do believe that, you know, it's that feeling I get when I go home, even though it is a reserve, and I know that there's, people have different feelings around reserves, but when I'm there, there's just like, <laughs> you feel it. You feel it, which is why I really want to go to North Carolina because I want to go to my Tuscarora homeland and just walk on that land and feel that because I know that when I'm there that I will feel that. Um, but I mean, like, I guess you use the, I don't want to say weapon, but use the tool that will do the job. And what, what, what are they going to listen to? Like, what can they not deny? I wrestled with that as well. And <clears throat> the way I came to terms with it is that in 1987, um, when uh, Uncle Marius was talking about touching the pen, elders were saying someone was writing at the time, and somewhere in Ottawa, this story must be there. And so it was almost like a challenge that was thrown out um, a, 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 a sense that uh, there must be some other kind of proof if what we say is not, is not going to work, right? Um, the oral tradition um, is very similar. In some ways, it's a little different. Oral tradition uh, about treaties uh, is, is challenged in courts, right? And uh, there's a book just came out that showed how uh, oral tradition about a certain treaty has changed over the years. Uh, so uh, the way I came to terms with it was the elders were saying there must be more records. I'm sure that in Ottawa there is this record. Gabe Spence, uh, for example, uh, and, and others at, uh, um, in uh, Fort Albany. Um, at in Fort Albany, they were saying there must be records somewhere that say this. Someone was there writing. And I... I didn't place a lot of trust in that at the time, I must confess, because I knew there was writing, but I thought, well, it could have been record keeping of the money going out, right? Someone was keeping a ledger 
um, is there a record to prove this? Because of, for all these years, we didn't know about the McMartin Journal. So shame on me for, for not, uh, not thinking that was as, as important as it was in 1987. There's something interesting to me, too, about the kind of, kind of how time is present then in this signed treaty, signed, like treaty signed, treaty signed in those diaries, in that it is, it is kind of incredible when you think of the, the, the time, right, the lack of time, really, that would have, that this performance would have to take place within, get there, communicate this to people, there must be a feast, right? So all of this, I think, eating, drinking, uh, communicating uh, is part of this performance that has to occur within a specific amount of time because we have to get in a canoe and move to the next place. That, that was the huge limiting factor. And, and it's frustrating because they give these details like left at 625, mm -hmm. right, or arrived at 10 after 7, but they seldom say how much time was spent. What we know is it was probably between an hour or two to actually negotiate before the signing. Half of that time would have been someone explaining for speakers of one language what the people of the other language. So you cut that in half, and there would have been a lot of speech making, and most of that didn't go in the journal, except mm -hmm. for little bits and pieces. So out of a couple of hours, maybe, we get a tiny little snippet about what it was, and that's the nugget of it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's this, that's the oral treaty. Mm -hmm. That's the treaty. The one thing that Canada is known for, the fact that the Supreme Court will accept oral testimony as evidence. I mean, that's groundbreaking in the Americas. But on the other hand, you choose, Murray, and I mean, I completely understand it, the fact that you take the written testimony to do the legal evidence work. So I'm just wondering about why, um, if Canada has this, um, this agreement to respect oral testimony, what kind of oral testimony could be brought forward that would be validated if, as you suggest, they're going to not treat the elders respectfully and so forth? So is it just in name only that oral testimony is respected but in fact um, won't win the case? Um, I, I think you basically nailed it there. Um, yeah, the Supreme Court of Canada has said several times Oral testimony of elders is valid evidence, it's admissible in court, but they've added so many qualifications to that um, that the principle has been so diluted, both in theory and in practice, because in practice in the courtroom, and I'm, I'm a litigation lawyer, I, I'm in court, you see what happens, and it's brutal. Um, you know, I've constantly said to elders, or don't do a case that depends on the memory of elders because the cross-examination of an adversarial system, it'll be brutal. There'll be, you know, they, the elders won't understand why this man or woman in front of them is asking these questions. They're very rude. They're accusing them of not, of basically lying, not, on and on and on. So, and I think, you know, you were saying, you know, you choose the, the tools that work, you know, and. Uh, so the, the principle of oral evidence being uh, admissible in court sounds good, but don't be fooled. Sometimes it works, not often. And um, so, uh, you know, in the, in the fine strokes, the details of looking at something like this, as I said, uh, people in Muskegua country, you know, would say we should go to take this issue to court, and I would say no, and I'm sure some of them said, what use are you, lawyer? You keep telling us not to go to court. You don't want to defend our rights, but it was absolutely, I think, the right thing to do. Um, and then, yeah, these diaries. Now, and these diaries will be, just like anything else, harshly um, tested in court. You know, the, the, the lawyers on the other side are going to say, you know, first of all, I'll bet you these aren't his diaries, prove that they are his. How are you going to prove now, 100 years later, that these are his? show me where they were every year since 1905 or else I'm going to object to them being admitted, period. You know, you know, show when he wrote these. Like, you, you don't know when he wrote these. Like, you, maybe he wrote them all, you know, six days later. When he, so, you know, 
Hmm. I could list 10 rules of evidence that they can use to challenge us, and they will, as I've told my clients. They will throw everything they can at us. Possibly. They may, some, somewhere in this process, it may be, it may, we may reach a tipping point where the government and the government lawyers say, um, you know what, we're not going to, um, we're not going to fight this tooth and nail the way we could. I mean, we're we're going to do the honorable thing. And this is why I say, you know, yeah, we, we're ready to fight tooth and nail endlessly in court. And I said to my clients, I said, you know what, there's a hundred procedural objections they can raise every step of the way, and everything we win, they will appeal, and anything we lose, we'll have to appeal. It'll go on and on and on. They have endless resources. The stakes are high. Uh, you know, depending on the government, you know, the present Harper government ain't going to like this, that's for sure. And it could go on, I said, 5, 10, 15 years. And I personally had to say, am I willing to do this for 15 years? Because if I'm not, don't bother starting. And I said to them, you know, this isn't about money. You know, far from it. And it was interesting. Um, uh, a couple of months ago, the Muskegon people had an, uh, uh, a conference in their territory of young professional Crees, you know, lawyers, engineers, doctors. They came, brought them back you know, who were working in the cities and said, what do you think? What, what do you want us to do with the, uh, you know, the, the future of the territory with the resource development and everything? And, and talked about this case as well. And, and what they said is, we don't, we, our people are living in poverty, but we don't want resource development at any cost. Protect the environment, protect the homeland, protect the rivers, protect the animals, you know. So, you know, it's, and so this, the elders say that, the young, educated young people say that. So it's an interesting, you know, and in the, um, uh, the, the, the Ring of Fire mineral development, Cliffs Resources, which is a gigantic mining company from the U.S., was wanting to go ahead with the mine. They did an environmental assessment that described it, a gigantic mine. But two, three months ago, they pulled out. They said, they said we can't, we're not gonna do it. You know, partly, I think, commodity prices were dropping. Partly, the First Nations were putting up such a, uh, you know, uh, fight. And I have sat and told the story of these diaries to executives of Cliffs Resources and their legal counsel repeatedly, mm -hmm. saying, you guys, you know, this is coming at you. So I don't know what made them change their mind. And partly, sometimes I said, of course, you know, it's not my decision, but there are sometimes some benefits from these mines in a limited way, often more damage than good. But that's not for me to decide. But then the, the professional people from Manishikigawa territory said, mm. you know, no resource development until it's done right. And there's something, there's something too about if we're thinking of this, like the, the ritual of treaty making, right? Whose ritual is it in this case? I was talking to John before, and I was thinking about that word treaty, and I was asking, like, would the, would the Korean Ojibwe have, have had a word for treaty? Would this have been a ritual that they are, of course, the argument is that they called for treaty, that they wanted treaty, but I'm curious if, if this was a ritual that all the actors involved uh, all understood in a, in a similar way. Well, I was, I was just, um, um, we just had a side conversation, of course, because at, at the start of the, the actual negotiations, clay pipes and tobacco were given out. So that, I mean, in this attempt to uh, uh, follow a, a respectful protocol or, or to be seen to be following a, a protocol, I guess. But the word treaty, of course, would have been interpreted. And my guess is that two words were used, because we don't know, we don't have, we don't have that, that kind of documentary record. We know what was said to the interpreter. So when they talked about a treaty, if they said, do you accept this treaty? It was probably said, do you accept this oral agreement? And when they said you, you, you will not get um, the money until after you sign the treaty, that was probably you get the money after you write on this paper or write on this book. Um, so um, I think the interpreter would have, would have used whatever made sense 
uh, in the context. So oral agreement, yes, we know all about them. Made them for thousands of years, right? right? Among ourselves, with our neighbors, with our enemies. Um, written agreements, that's something much more recent, but they're strange, these white people, and they do write in books, and whenever they give you something, they write it down. <laughs> But I was asking, I asked Rosary when we were rehearsing, mm. because what we did at the beginning, um, and what we're, I think, probably, because I do feel like we'll probably revisit it, is we're playing with, I had her read a section of the treaty, and then we had her go over it in Cree and pick parts out, and mm. she said, there's no word for treaty. Mm. Like, she couldn't literally translate treaty into Cree. There was mm. no way to do that. So I found that really interesting. But what was the word she was talking about? The word that kind of came closest. I know, I can't remember what it is now. Oh, yeah, you, you, like, you owe me something. Yeah. Like, you owe me something now. Yeah. When you borrow, it's writing something in a book, yeah. I'm putting it on credit, right? <laughs> Char just charge it. Right? <laughs> the, yeah. um, this is my chance to get even a John. Uh, this, this just reminded me of something many years ago, long, long time ago. John and I were at a Mushkigwa conference and uh, working together on something, and uh, we were talking about native self-government then, and I was asked to summarize a discussion, and I said to John, uh, what, what's the uh, Cree word for self-government? He thought, he smiled. He says, there's no word for self-government. There's a word for doing things yourself. So he told it to me. I repeated it to the assembly. Everyone started laughing. And then John is smirking. And I said, what's going on? And he says, that's the, uh, the word I gave you for doing things yourself is the word for masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> you learn the bad words first sometimes. <laughs> Why I agreed to be on a panel with them, I don't know. <laughs> And the other word, of course, would be promises, something that people would understand, right? So you got promises, oral agreement, and you have this, con you know, something in a book or, or, or an inscribed document. Someone uh, said to me this past summer, uh, if, it's, if art isn't political, it's just decoration, which I really love because I think all art is political and I think the very existence of indigenous people in the world is a political statement because we are not supposed to be here. Um, and whenever I work, like whatever I write, whenever I'm writing, whatever I'm working on is always political. Um, I default to funny a lot. <laughs> but I think that that's kind of a useful way to get in political facts to sort of crack someone open, to have them laugh, and then to be like, and then here's a bunch of education. <laughs> like, I, that's the way that I, I find is the most successful way for me to teach because I think as artists, we are teachers. We are storytellers, we are teachers. Um, and also I feel a responsibility to, to educate because, because we all went through the same Canadian school systems for the most part here. Um, and so we all know the same amount of information. And the only reason that anyone, any one of us would know anything more about the history of Canada and the history of treaty making and the history of indigenous and European uh, dealings is because we've had to educate ourselves. Like that, do, it doesn't exist really, right? Like when I took Aboriginal studies in high school, we drew posters and watched black robe. Like that was my, that and like, and it was considered progressive. And I like, I'm from Six Nations and I went to high school in Caledonia where the standoff was next door. And that's, that was my education. So everything that I have is from me looking for it, from reading big giant books. <laughs> <laughs> but looking for it because it doesn't, it's, it's, you have to, you have to teach yourself. And I think art is sort of the, the, for me anyway, that's my, that's my tool. That's the tool that I find best works for this job. Disputes around treaties continue all over what is now known as Canada. You may remember as recently and as locally as this past summer, when a construction site in Caledonia, known to some as Landback Lane or Mackenzie Meadows, became the focus of an intense months-long protest. 
Since July 2020, protesters have occupied the site of a proposed housing development in Caledonia, which they assert is on unceded Six Nations land. Phelan continues to be engaged in examining treaty through her art and her activism with Land Back Lane. John continued to advocate for respectful relations with indigenous nations until he passed in 2016. We like to dedicate this conversatorio to his memory. We are speaking to you from the shores of this beautiful Zaga Egan, known to some as Lake Ontario, in Toronto, or Dugarondo. This is the ancestral territory of the Haudenosaunee, or Longhouse Confederacy, the Anishinaabeg Nation, the Wendat, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. This land is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum and Treaty 13, also known as the Toronto Purchase. Araluna. We remember that people can begin to heal when they are hurt. We are committed to artful participation in disagreements. We are committed to unsettling ourselves towards connection, respect, and justice for all people who now live in this city, which has been a meeting place since time immemorial. Radio Aluna Teatro is produced by Aluna Theatre, with support from the Toronto Arts Council, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Department of Canadian Heritage, the Metcalf Foundation, and TD Bank. Aluna Theater is Beatriz Pisano and Trevor Shellness with Sue Ballant. Radio Aluna Theater is produced by Monica Garrido and Camila Diaz Varela. For more about Aluna Theater, visit us at alunatheater.ca, follow at Aluna Theater on Twitter or Instagram, or like us on Facebook. Miigwech and Nyawangoa.